one of the great leaders from the ancient Near East, his name was Hammurabi, and uh, he was with the old Babylonian Empire, but he used this strategy all the time of divide and conquer. What he would do, it was always amazing to me, he would actually start wars between two kingdoms, and then once uh, he had started those wars between them and they fought each other and weakened each other through their own fighting, then he would bring his army in and wipe out both of them at the same time. And for Hammurabi, the divide and conquer technique worked very, very well. And he grew one of the greatest empires uh, known to humanity at that time. Well, that strategy is a very old strategy, but it, it goes all the way back to Satan himself. We see it in the garden um, with Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve, of course, with the Lord. But we also see it from then forward, and Satan has used this strategy quite a bit. And we see this strategy being utilized here in Nehemiah chapter 5. As we looked in chapter 4, we saw how the outside enemies, the external enemies, had surrounded the people of God, and yet God protected them. They withstood that attack and those threats and continued in their work. But as we look in chapter 5, what we see here is trouble from within, a real problem with the people of God themselves, and actually a number of problems. And what we see is Satan, I believe, really trying to cause dissension among the people of God. And that strategy is not something he only did in the garden. It's not something that he did just only with the people in Nehemiah's day, but it is a strategy that he would use in your family and in this church if he could get away with it and if it would work for him. And so as we look at this, we need to be very much aware of what Satan was doing and how this was being brought about um, as, as we see these things. Now, there are three sections here as we look at this passage. The first section is in verses 1 through 5, and we see really the misfortune of the people of God. A lot, a lot of terrible things are going on with them. The second thing we see in verses 6 through 13 is the resolution to the misfortune and how um, Nehemiah acts upon it and comes to a resolution for the people. And finally, in verses 14 through 19, we see compassion. We see the compassion that Nehemiah shows to the people of God as an example of what it means to be a child of God. So let's look, first of all, at the misfortune. Let's begin reading with verse 1 here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us uh, get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong 
to others. So what is the first cry for help? What we see here is the people, and notice in verse 1, it specifically mentions an outcry from the people and of their wives. And why are the wives mentioned here specifically? Well, here's what was happening. There's work being done on the wall in Jerusalem. And we looked and saw how in chapter 3, we saw all the people from all over Judah who came to help in the work on the wall. And we must remember that because of the external threat, Nehemiah told them they had to stay at the wall and they couldn't leave. And so what has happened is the people who are working on the wall, mostly men, but remember there were some women involved in this as well, but all these people came into Jerusalem and they were working on the wall and they had to stay on the wall and the greater part of them left their families back in their villages and on their farms back across all of the countryside of Judah. And so these wives are trying to make ends meet by taking care of their children and trying to work the farms and trying to do everything they can do to take care of their families while the men in their families have gone to work on the wall. And it's not working out very well because these women do not have the means. There's not enough of them. And there's just some of it is, is work that was very difficult for them to keep on top of, along with the other work that they had themselves that they did normally all day long on their own. And so with all of that going on, they're crying out and saying, we don't have any food. We're in a bad way. And we need help as we're going through all of these terrible times. We need grain. We need help in all of this. And so here's what they're, they're complaining about. And it's not just that they don't have food, but the complaint is also that the people around them who do have food are not sharing their food with them. They're not getting help from others during this crisis. And so this is a, a terrible situation. What they have done is made a major sacrifice in their husbands and sons and brothers and even some of their sisters going to work at the wall. And now they are threatened, really their lives are threatened because of the situation. They just do not have enough food. And then those around them are hoarding what they have for themselves and not helping those in need. And that was the situation. And so that's one complaint, but there's more. Look in verse 3. It says, there were others who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. So here we learn that not only is there not food because they're not able to do the farm work themselves, but there is a famine going on. And so people are mortgaging their fields and their vineyards and their houses to, to get money so that they can buy food to take care of their families. And who are they mortgaging their farms to? Well, other Jews. And these other Jews 
are taking in all this money and all these properties and then gaining the money from using those properties to, to work the, what fields they could work. And so it was just, just snowballing and getting worse. And so again, we see rich brothers, rich Jewish brothers who are giving out loans, but their loans are by taking the fields and the vineyards and houses from people to give them the loans they need so that they can purchase what little food there is. But that's not all. There is a third cry for help here, and we saw it and read it just a moment ago in verses 4 and 5. And there are those who said, we've been borrowing money because of the king's tax. And again, this is Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And it is interesting, in biblical history, I think that if we're not careful, those of us who do study the Old Testament and have some knowledge of this, that we may get the wrong impression about the Persians. Because... If you know your Bible, you know this, that the Assyrians, who were the first major power we can talk about in the Old Testament, as they took control of Judah and Israel and took control of other nations as well, what they would do is actually take the people into exile. In other words, they would, they would put them in chains and lead them off to a foreign country, and then another foreign nation where they've taken control of that nation they would put them in chains and take them into Israel, for instance, or Judah, but they would, they would move people around, and they thought they could control them better if they were out of familiar territory, if they felt like foreigners in a foreign land. And so it was a way of keeping them in check and, and uh, keeping them kind of off sync because of their new surroundings and, and their, their difficulty of having been, been moved. The Assyrians had this policy when they conquered. The Babylonians who came along next, that was their policy. But when the Persians conquered the Babylonians and they took over this part of the world, they had a very different policy. Their policy, and you can read this, um, the, the edict that was given by their king Cyrus, you can read this in the first part of Ezra and also in First Chronicles. And what you see there is um, Cyrus says, I'm the Lord's servant. Yahweh has sent me to save you. And I want you to go back to your homes. Yes, the Babylonians have taken you and put you into exile and removed you from your homes and taken away your places of worship. I want you to go back home. I want you to build your homes. I want you to build your temple. What's more, I'm gonna give you all the material to build your temple. And I'm going to give you the resources you need to do that. Now, on face value, it really sounds like Cyrus just, was just the greatest guy there ever was. Like, this is fantastic. What a lot of people don't realize that their tax rate was about 50% at the lowest end. And so what they did is they suppressed people under them with economics. And the Persians were known for this. In fact, in your history, it was the Greeks who defeated the Persians under Alexander the Great. 
when Alexander the Great gets to Susa, which was the Persian capital, I wrote it down to make sure that um, I don't uh, get this mixed up here. He found 270 tons of gold and 1,200 tons of silver there. And this was all taken from all of the people that they had conquered. And by the way, that's the only way they would receive taxes was silver and gold. And so where others would maybe take taxes from just material, from farm goods or, or produce, no, 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 no. You had to pay the Persians and silver or gold or you were going to lose what you had. And so this is the situation they find themselves in. And it is a terrible situation, of course. And so what do we have? We have a lack of concern and support for the families of those that are working on the wall. And they're starving, they're in a bad way, no one's looking out for them. There's a famine in the land, and so people are overpricing their food such that people cannot afford it. We know all about price gouging. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it seems like whenever anything possibly might happen, um, you go to your local gas station, not all of them, but a lot of them, they'll just shoot those prices up. And then um, you see in the news and you're like cheering them on saying, hey, we're going to get these people because they had nothing to do with the gas prices going up. And so you're like, yeah, good, um, have that. And I want to save my three cents uh, a gallon, whatever. But they were price gouging. And so the people were overpriced, um, or, or the merchants were overpricing things. They were greedy. They were taking advantage of the people while a famine was going on. People were not sharing what they had. People were, the merchants were price gouging. And then we have on top of that the Persian king with his high, very high taxes that he was putting on them. So what is the resolution to this? Well, we see this in verse 6. Then I was very angry. This is Nehemiah speaking here. He says, then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and, the, and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting exacting." Usury, in other words, you're charging interest, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Do you hear that there? Do you remember when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in the first place? What was he concerned about? He was concerned about the fear of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, and what else? The reproach before the nations. And this is what the people of God should have themselves. And in verse 10, he says, and likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, 
and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and, the, and of the grain, the new wine and the, the oil that you're exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out from the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. It's interesting here, as we look at this, how Nehemiah responded. The first thing we see here is he says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. The question we might have, was it right for Nehemiah to be angry? Did Nehemiah sin in his anger? The Bible has a lot to say about anger, and it's not always good. In fact, is it ever right for a person to get angry? And if it is, a believer to get angry, and if it is, when is it right for a believer to get angry, and what does that anger look like? James wrote this in James 1.20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And I didn't put down any of the Proverbs to share with you, but there are a whole host of passages in the Proverbs really warning against anger. And so what are we to, to make of this? Well, Paul, it is interesting, also in Ephesians 4, just a few verses earlier, four verses, in fact, wrote these words, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So again, what are we to make of this? Well, there are times then that a believer may be angry, but when are those times? And there's a way for believers to be angry and there's a way for believers not to be angry. So what is the way to be angry if we are to be angry. Well, another Old Testament uh, teacher um, named Bob Deffenball has uh, tackled this question, and I'm going to add some things to it, but uh, he gave five reasons. I'm going to give you two more. So I'm going to give you seven reasons or seven characteristics, really, not reasons, but characteristics of godly anger that righteous people should have. Number one, godly people are angry when God is angry. That's the first one right there. When is it right for us to be angry? It is right for us to be angry when God is angry. 
And it is anger that is consistent with the holy and righteous character of God. It's interesting, the prophet Amos made this clear. He says that God is angered when the people of God take advantage of their brothers and sisters in the community of faith, especially when these brothers and sisters are in desperate straits. So the question is, when Nehemiah was angry, was he angry at something that God says he's angry about? Absolutely. I will tell you this. I've spent a little bit of time in the Old Testament. I hide it well, though. But... Um, but I will say this, that I have found there's nothing that gets God any more heated than people taking advantage of the weak and the poor. That you are on really treacherous, dangerous ground when you start taking advantage of the weak and the poor and do not help them. And you can go through the prophets, you can go all the way into the law, God makes it very clear that he is against those who would take advantage of the weak and the poor. And so, Nehemiah was angry. He was angry because some of his brothers were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters during a difficult time. And is this biblical anger? Is this the anger that God has? Absolutely. Number two, godly anger is a legal anger. So what do you mean by that? It is wrath based upon men's violation of God's law, and it is anger which is lawfully expressed. It is godly. It is not vigil anti-justice. It is legal justice. Um, my sons, I have two sons that are men now, and, and I have a, a grandson that's uh, fast moving toward three years old, and I see my, my son passing along things that I passed to him. And one of the things that I enjoyed as a kid and then had my sons, and I really did want to have children so I would have an excuse to play with their toys. Really, that's what I wanted to do. So I was really eager for that to happen. And I am a huge DC Comics fan. I'm a Batman guy, Superman guy. And while, and I see um, my, uh, I just got a, a FaceTime video um, just last week. And uh, my, my grandson, my, our, our daughter-in-law, held him in the mirror, and he was looking at us, and he had a Batman mask, and he had a Cleveland Browns jersey. And I wrote and said, that is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life right there. It's wonderful. He's, he's on a right start. And so I say that, but Batman's a vigilante. He really is. And so while I may enjoy him, God would not. I'm glad he's just a fictional character. But the deal is, there's no place for that. And so the anger that is taken by the people of God, the, the steps that are taken, it will be done legal because God works within his own law. And he has established it himself. And we are to walk within that. 
as well to be more expressive and to be more up-to-date. I hate abortion. I hate it as much as I hate anything. But we are not to express our hatred of abortion by burning down property and threatening the lives of others while we hate something that is godless. But we do it legally. We do it the way God would have us do it. And to understand that, that's not an Old Testament concept. That's a Bible concept. And so we need to to recognize that. And so does he do this? Absolutely. He uses the word usury here. Again, it's charging interest. And the Old Testament law in a number of places makes it very clear. You can give a loan to your brothers and sisters, that is other Israel, uh, Hebrews, other, other people of Israel, but you cannot charge interest of them. You cannot take anything from them. You give it to them and they pay you when they pay you. You are not to take from them. You are to help them. And what are they doing? They're taking the very means that they have to pay back from them because there's this famine going on and because their, their uh, husbands and, and sons are off to Jerusalem building the wall and they're taking all these things from them to give them loans instead of caring for them and helping them. They're taking advantage of the situation and the law is very clear that is not to be the case. It's interesting today how in the church, and this is just an aside, I, I do know when I'm chasing rabbits, so I'm, gonna, I'm doing it right now, okay? But just as an aside, it is interesting how the church today has such a negative view of Old Testament law, and I guarantee most of us have not read it very much. Because if we had read it, we would realize when Jesus says, love of God and love of neighbor, and the whole law is fulfilled in that, exactly. And when you read the law, that is at the heart of it. It is to demonstrate a love for God, and it is to demonstrate a love for people, and it is looking out for the needs of people, especially the weak and the poor. And so this is something that is legal in the law as Nehemiah brings this out. And they're, they're taking advantage of their own people. And by the way, the prophets... They speak to this, and they say this is a repugnant thing to God, for the people of God to take advantage of one another instead of helping one another. Number three, God's anger is not explosive, but it's, it's only slowly provoked. And we see this, for instance, in Exodus 34, 6. Was Nehemiah's anger slowly provoked? Notice what he does. He listens to them, and he consults within himself. He doesn't blow up, but he gives himself some time to consider what was going on before there's any expression of this anger, which brings me to number four. God does not take pleasure in expressing his anger in the judgment of men. You might write down 2 Peter 3, 9. He doesn't take pleasure in this. And Nehemiah demonstrated no joy in confronting the nobles over their sins against their brothers and sisters. 
The only joy shown in this passage is the joy of everyone when the moneylenders repent and they do what they're supposed to do. There's no joy in this. And God doesn't take pleasure in judgment, and neither did Nehemiah. Number five, God's godly anger is always under control. Godly anger is always under control of the, of the one expressing it rather than anger taking control of them. I think of our Lord Jesus Christ when he went and cleansed the temple. What does the scripture say he did before he went and turned over those table, tables and, 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 and cleaned out the temple? said he made a whip and he took time to twist that wet leather to get that whip before he acted upon what he was about to do. Jesus showed full control. He just didn't blow up at what he saw, but it was something that he did with full control as he did it. Godly anger is always controlled. Was Nehemiah in control? The fact, again, that he took some time to think about it himself before he confronted the people demonstrated his control. Number six, godly anger is zealous for that which pertains to God and for the glory of God. I tell you, when I do get angry, I hate to say this, but most of the time, my anger is because I'm zealous for me. And it's usually over something that I don't like that pertains to me. I'm sure none of you ever had that problem before. And that is Cleveland, Ohio sarcasm, by the way, just in case you didn't realize. But yes, Yes, we we can get so angry, and we can even kind of clothe it in spiritual things when we often, if we would just get at the core of it, it's still about us. And godly anger is zealous for that which pertains to God and his glory. And this is what he says here, doesn't he, in verse 9. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? It is all about the Lord's reputation, and the people's reputation was tied to the Lord's reputation. Why would you do such a thing such that the, the, the nations look at us and the enemies of God look at us and they just shake their head and say, they're no different than we are? And you bring reproach to the Lord God and to his people by acting that way. And so, was he concerned about it? Absolutely. It was about God. It wasn't about Nehemiah. It was about God and the people of God. Number seven, godly anger seeks to put an end to wrongdoing and injustice. And again, it will be done in a godly or legal way, but action will be taken nonetheless. And he does this. What he does is he confronts these people who were sinning against their brothers and sisters. He, does, he doesn't just let it go. He doesn't wring his hands and hope that something will happen so that things will get better. No, he takes action. He does it in a godly way. And he, he even gives the reason that it is really about God's reputation and the people of God. It wasn't personal for Nehemiah is because of his love for God and his people that he did this. And so we see 
There's careful contemplation. And the Proverbs speak to this. Proverbs 13, 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. That's what Nehemiah was. Also, he confronts them. He confronts them. He just, again, as I said, he doesn't let it go. And how does he confront them? He calls an assembly of everyone. He wants this to be out in the open because what they have been doing has been out in the open. And so he's dealing with it so everyone knows that it's being dealt with. One of the things I would say, and I think it's usually wise, if something has been done that is secret and it will only cause more harm when it's out in the open, then if you can deal with it one-on-one, do so. But if it is something that affects everybody, then it needs to be dealt with, with everybody. And I got this from a professor in an education class. So if you're in a class, in a high school class, and one of your students acts up in front of everybody, you need to deal with them publicly. Because everyone else will think it's okay to do that if you don't deal with them in that way. And they'll think that you're not going to deal with it. But there are other times I knew kids did something, had nothing to do with anyone else, but it was wrong of them to do it. I would take them aside, not embarrass them publicly, and say, okay, we need to, we need to deal with this. And so be wise about this. But this was something that was publicly done. It was harming the whole community, or most of the community. People it wasn't harming are the ones that were taking advantage of people. But in the, it was harming them spiritually. It was harming everybody. And so this is what he does. He calls an assembly. He isolates the, the lawbreakers. And he confronts them in front of everyone. And he calls them out for exacting interest on loans and confiscating the properties of people and also for the practice of taking children into servitude to work for their parents to pay off their debts. And while the passage doesn't speak specifically of human trafficking, there are a lot of scholars that would say it might be implied here. It is interesting that it does mention, and already our, some of our daughters are already being taken. It's not explicit, but it is interesting to note what was going on there. And so what does he do? He calls them out. And you know what they do? They repent. They repent. And this, this needs to teach us something. How often do we not mend relationships and get things right because we carry a grudge rather than going to the person and giving them an opportunity to do what's right because you're doing what's right by them. You know what love does in brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul speaks of this in Corinthians. Love believes the best of others, and it expects the best of others. It doesn't expect the worst of others. 
And what Nehemiah did, he showed the love of a brother to brothers who were sinning, but he showed them love, the, the love of God, by confronting them and giving them the opportunity to repent and do the right thing. He didn't hold a grudge, didn't go behind their backs and talk terrible about them. He got them before everyone because everyone was involved. Everyone knew anyhow. Everyone was a part of it. And he said, this is what's going wrong. Let's make this right. And they said, you're right. We will make it right. And so this is what he did. Jesus spoke of this. If you have, in Matthew 18, if your brother has offended you, what are you to do? Before you worship the Lord, go to them and make things right with them. It is honoring. It is loving. It is what the people of God are to be. And it is doing so believing the best of people rather than the worst. I wonder, have you ever done something that you just really are ashamed of? Have you ever said something that you wish, I mean, as it was coming out your mouth, you wish you could just catch it and bring it back in? And it's already out there. We all have. Have you ever done that and someone forgiven you for what you've done? I hope so. Because there's nothing like that. Because you realize that you've wronged that person, and yet... In love, they have forgiven you. And that is what we have all experienced in Christ. And if he has shown that consideration to us, he being righteous and we being sinners, then how about our being sinners? How should we be with one another if he has done this for us? And so... He gives them the opportunity to do the right thing. And then, what does he do? We see here in verse 13, there's a public display here. He takes, shook out the front of his clothing, and really, he calls out a curse on any who have just lied if they've lied. Any one of these people who says that they're going to do the right thing and they don't do the right thing, may they lose everything. May what they have done to these others, may it happen to them. And he does this publicly so that they might see and not just hear and recognize the importance of what was going on in the situation. And so it was a symbolic act. You know, we should not take lightly acts that are symbolic acts. And a little bit here, we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. For many of you, it may be that you've done this many, 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 many times. And for others, maybe not so much. But for those of us who have, let us never forget what it means. Let us never forget 
what it means for what Christ has done, but also let us not forget what it means for us as the people of God who are saved by grace through faith because of the life, death, and burial and resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of the salvation that we have by grace through faith in him. Let us not forget these symbolic acts. They mean something. And we need to not negate that. I was sharing the gospel with a lady just recently. And um, she had seen a Baptist baptism. She didn't grow up in a Baptist background. And she, she was just like, you guys, she, she was talking about where I grew up, they'd go out in the river and do this. And she said, I don't know what they were doing. I said, well, let me tell you what they were doing. And I said, what that represents is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the life that we have in Christ, when we go into that water, that is our lives before Christ. But when we go down, we are buried. Our sins, it is a symbolic act showing that our sins have been buried and that we are in Christ. And that while our old self is dead, we are risen, alive, a new people, resurrected in Jesus Christ. I said, that's what that means. It's what it meant to me. And it's what it means in the scriptures. It's what it means to every believer who goes into the waters of baptism. And so let's not forget these symbolic acts. Well, how does, how does the passage finish? We see compassion. Notice in verse 14, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them the bread and the wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work of this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were um, gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and other officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. According to all that I've done for this people, it is clear from this text, Nehemiah was quite wealthy. But it is also clear from this text that while he could have taken advantage of the people and become more wealthy, just as his predecessors had done, he didn't do that. Instead, he was committed to putting an end to exploitation and show compassion to the people. And why did he do this? One, he says, because he feared God. I'm guessing that Nehemiah had some idea of the Old Testament law. He knew his word. He knew his Bible. And he knew who, the, who God is and was. And, and, and he understood God will not allow 
a person to take advantage of the weak and poor without consequence. So there's a fear of the Lord that comes out in this. He wants to do the right thing. But not only that, it's because of his love for God and the people. It's because of his affection for the people, because he recognized how difficult things were for them, and he cared for them, he loved them, and he did what he could to help them, not to take advantage of them. James writes this in James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 14, verses 34 and 35, very near to the end of his time here on this earth. He said, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what we have been called to. I hear, I've heard in circles say that this kind of preaching is just veggie tale preaching, just morals, be a good person. It's not Christ-centered preaching. Let me tell you, I'll calm myself here for a minute, try to practice what I said a little bit ago. There is nothing more Christ-like or Christ-centered than the work of sanctification that Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, is doing in your life and my life to make us more like Christ. Yes, we have been justified. Yes, we will be glorified. But right now, where you are and where I am, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is about the work of sanctification, making us more like Christ, and teaching us in his word what it looks like to be like Christ. How can there be anything any more Christocentric and Christ-centered than that? And so it matters how we live because it gives evidence of who we are and that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we're not good for goodness sake like the the Christmas carol says. We are good for Christ's sake because he alone is good And to be in Christ is to be Christ-like. And that is what he has called us to. Christians who care about the needs of others, who see the need, listen to the concerns, and do not ignore them, that is Christ-likeness. We're not to be exploiting others. We need to be helping others. And I want to close with, again, some questions for you. What needs do you see in people's lives around you, and what are you doing to help them, especially among the people of God? Are there ways you might be guilty of taking advantage of others, just as these people, some of them were doing? When you get angry, is it more often righteous anger or self-centered anger? And finally, 
In what ways are you an example to others of a believer whose desire is to serve others for the glory of Christ? Greatness in the kingdom, according to our Savior, is the one who will be a servant. And that is what he's called us to do. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the people of God in Nehemiah's day and Nehemiah himself. Thank you that you were glorified and you continue to be glorified through your people. I pray, Father, that through the work of your Holy Spirit in us, that we would be the servants you called us to be, especially to one another. May our love for one another shine, not to point people to ourselves, but to point people to you, to your son, and that we would truly be the testimony you called us to be. As your son said, they will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. May that be known to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray, amen.